It is the first time that I've actually listened to his messages outside of church in a recording sense. I'll tell you why. I think sometimes you don't realize how much of a good job someone is doing until they ask you to fill in their shoes. <laughs> so I'm like, right, okay, how do I do this? So quickly I'm trying to grab up everything that I've got with Pastor Phil. I'm trying to see how I can do this. And I was quite thankful actually that Natalie sent Amy the recording and Chuck sent me the recording so I was able to study that and listen and learn how exactly the vision that God has for this message is going forward. Amen? So I'm blessed. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm honored and I'm covered. You know, so just be at ease. Um, we're going to enjoy ourselves today. I think we, we are on schedule, so, you know, I will try not to take too much of your time. Because if I do, next time I'm preaching, you won't come. <laughs> we want to come. <laughs> you want to come. Exactly. We're in the same spirit. Amen? So as I say, it was awesome. Uh, I think Pastor did a great introduction into the letters. Uh, he did a wonderful introduction, you know, wonderful. He covered a lot of things regarding the importance of letters and really what letters do mean. I love these letters. I think as I began to study these letters, I realized that they're powerful letters, you know? They're prophetic letters. Uh, so before I actually read uh, the letter of Pegamos that we're studying today, I'm just going to do a quick recap of what we learned last week from Pastor Phil. Amen? So if there's one thing that we learned, uh, one of the few things that he gave us was that God is with us. Amen? He is in the church. Amen? God is here. God is with us. God is in the church. And also that Jesus says, I know your suffering. Amen? He says, I know your suffering. This is from Revelation uh, 2, uh, from verse 1 until verse 11, covering the church of Ephesus. So he says, I know your suffering and your endurance, and he appreciates it. Amen? So he says, I appreciate your suffering. And the third thing was that God corrects or God purifies those that he loves. Amen? And God is not here to entertain us. God is here to correct us. God is here to purify us. God is here to grow us and to challenge us and to push us further towards what really he has called us to do in our lives. Amen? Amen. And another thing that we learn is that God says, I need your love or your service. As we serve, we serve God. Amen? As we serve, we don't serve pastors. As we serve, essentially, we serve God. And I think we remember Pastor Peter came and he really pushed us towards that mindset of knowing that when we serve, we serve God. Amen? And the fifth thing that we learned was that he who has ears, let him hear. That's what it says in um, Revelation. It's the last thing that it says in Revelation 2 verse 11. It says, he who has ears, let him hear. Meaning that the Spirit keeps speaking. So it's important for us to stay tuned in the Spirit and to stay in the Spirit. To stay alert at all times. Amen? And the sixth thing that we learned on Tuesdays, for those of you that were here on Tuesday, uh, which is why it's actually important to come on Tuesdays, it says, I love it when you know certain schemes and you deal with them, including false apostles. So those are the six points that we learned uh, regarding the letter to the church in Ephesus. Amen? So what we're covering today is um, a letter to the church in Pergamon. Or in Pergamos. And if you can turn your Bibles with me to uh, Revelation 2, we're reading from verse 12 to verse 17. It's a nice short passage, but very powerful as well. Everyone there? Okay, let's read. It says, To the angel 
of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, says Jesus. There are some among you who hold on to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Verse 15. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Verse 17 says, Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Amen. Isn't that a powerful letter? Powerful prophetic letter, which I think, and I know that it applies heavily, it applies significantly to our church today and in the society that we live. So just a few background things about Pergamum or Pergamos. It's still around today. Uh, however, it's been renamed. Now, Pergamos means exalted or lifted. Uh, this was, when I, when I studied it, I mean, according to scholars, it was simply given just because the place geographically was placed on a mountain. It was sort of above ground. So hence the name Pergamon, Pergamos. So it's nothing spiritual. It was simply because it was on a mountain or on a hill, should you say. So that's hence the name. It was a thriving city at the time. Uh, and some scholars say it rivaled Ephesus in many ways. So it was a thriving city. You know, if, if Ephesus was number one, I'd say it was number two. So, you know, can think of any city in the UK that rivals London? Could be Manchester or Birmingham. So it was sort of somewhere there. And it was very influential in terms of um, education. Um, and it is said that some of the most famous physicians came to Pergamos and studied um, you know, um, doctrines in terms of how to heal the bodies and everything to do with neurology, name it, to do with the body. This was the place to be. And he had a huge library at the time, which is still around today. And I think it's been reconstructed in, in Germany. The Germans have tried to kind of um, restructure or just to rebuild what they saw in Pergamos at the time. However, it was read in scripture, this was a city infiltrated with uh, idol worship. There was a lot of moral corruption. Does it sound familiar to the times that we're living in now? You know, and according to scholars, it rivaled Ephesus again in, um, in idol worship. So as we learned last week uh, with the church in Ephesus, there also was idol worship. Likewise, these guys rivaled Ephesus in idol worship. And the city's chief god was known as Asclepius, who was the god of healing, hence why Many people traveled from across the world to come and study medicine in this very area. They believed in this God called Asclepius, who was the God of healing. So people came from all over the world just to gather and, and try and pray to this God to receive healing and miracles. And the symbol that they used at that time, according to scholars, is a snake that was... Uh, if, you, if, you've, if you've seen the symbol of the snake that's sort of twisted you know, along a road or something, it's, 
It's, it's in many medical um, industries across the world, just in America and here in the UK as well. Amen? So that's just a bit of background of Pergamos, so you know what this area was like, what this place was like. But interestingly, there was a church there that Jesus recognized. In the midst of all this, there was a church that Jesus saw, that Jesus wanted to send a message to. And this is what we read about in Revelation 2, verse 12. Now, there are some very key lessons that we can pull out when we start to really look at the passage that Jesus sent out to this church. And if there is the first thing that I pulled out was that Jesus knows where we are. He knows where you are. If you look at um, verse 12, okay, let's take a verse 18 actually. The first thing that he says is, I know where you live. I know where you live. I know where you live. And think again to this place and how this place was and all this idol worship, all this that was going on. These guys had about four or five gods that were the main gods that they really believed in or that they worshipped in. This is the place that Jesus says, this is where Satan had his throne. And the first thing that Jesus says is, I know where you live. Amen? And I think that reminds me that God is well aware of the surroundings that we're in. Regardless of what's going on outside, God is still in the church. God still has his eye in his church. Amen? Amen? Amen. I find this passage very interesting and I think we're going to have a great time just learning about it. And we don't, we don't serve a God who is, who is blind. Amen? Amen? He knows where your heart is. He knows where physically you are. And that reminds me of, of what Pastor Peter again told us about a couple of weeks ago when he was teaching us about how to start serving God in the local church. And that's very important. That's very key to serve God where we are right now because that's where God is. He is in the small gatherings that we are in. He's in the local church. Amen? Amen. Now, just a, just a question, a, a hypothetical question. What would you do if, if Jesus came to you in person and says, I know where you live. <laughs> if he just came to you, if he just appeared, you know, you're on your way home, you're eating uh, chicken and chips. And he says, I know where you live. Wouldn't that give you a bit of peace? Comfort? Will you be satisfied in every sense? But guess what he says? He says, I know where you live. So he says it. It's not like he doesn't know. We serve a God who's everywhere, and yet he's very personal. Amen. He's very personal. Very, very personal. And if, if you look at the passage in John 10, 14, I won't open there, but I'll read to you what it says. It says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. So he boasts about us. Amen? Amen. He boasts about us. And that's why it's very important for us to be planted in a church. That's why it's very important for us to to really plant ourselves with our feet firmly on the ground. And I think it's no coincidence that over the last couple of weeks we're learning about planting and serving God in the local church where we are. Because that's where God begins. 
Amen? This is where God begins your calling. Whatever you want to do in your future, whatever you see yourselves in the future, it begins here. Amen? And the biggest mistake I think we can make is to think that, okay, one day when I move to a bigger town, I often hear people say that, ah, oh, I need to move to a bigger town, you know, that's when things are happening. <laughs> but isn't it funny when you look at it that even in Scripture, it's advisable to start serving God where we are. I often say to myself, and I say this to Amy all, all, all the time, that this place that we are in, threshold for us is a training ground. And I think we need to take advantage of the fact that we all can serve God in this small union that we're in. We, we can all do something. For worshipping, we're worshipping. For we're doing the sound, we're doing the sound. If we're, you know, helping the kids, we're helping the kids. It's important for us to do something. The idea that one day when we go out and move into a bigger city will be much more effective, I think it's a lie. Amen? So it's very, very reassuring that in a place where certain has his throne, God has his eyes on us. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. Moving on. Uh, the second thing that we see, um, still in verse 13, and it says, Yet you remain true to my name. And if there's one thing that I get from that is devotion. If there's a second thing that I learned just from that simple you know, line is that remain steadfast. Remain devoted. Now this church, it is said that it refused to renounce their faith. These guys refused to renounce their faith, bearing in mind that this was a time of the Roman rulership where the, Roman, the Romans were ruling the entire world at the time. These guys remained steadfast to serving God. And it says um, in verse 13, the last part it says, you did not Renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. So there's that reference again. So if this guy who's Antipas was a faithful servant of God, was serving God, God knew his name in the midst of all this confusion and corruption that was going on. God knew him, God knew his name, and God knows that he was killed for his name's sake. And yet, they remain true to his name. Isn't that a powerful thing? And I think also learning from that, we do realize that serving God, especially in the society that we're in today, it comes at a cost. It comes at a cost. Just standing up for what you believe in will come at a cost. It will cost you your family. It will cost you money. It will cost you your loved ones. And in the case of Antipas, it cost him his life. It wasn't an easy thing to do, to worship Jesus in the Roman times. It wasn't an easy thing to do. So we know that when Jesus rose from the dead, the first thing that the Romans tried to do was to silence anyone that believed that Jesus rose from the dead. So they killed everyone who believed so. And the more they killed people, the more the disciples spread the word. At that time, Saul was still unsaved. So the more Saul chased them, to kill them, the more they scattered everywhere across the world. And the more they spread the word of God. Isn't it interesting when you think about so how effective he was in killing the Christians? This guy had authority. He'd been given the power to do so. And yet these guys remain true to serving God in the midst of all this. Amen? And that is who we aspire to be, just serving God in this community that we're in, just to stand strong and stand firm 
stand true to our faith, that regardless of what it costs us or what it may cost us to save God, we stay true to his name. Amen? Leading to the third thing, uh, third lesson that I learned from this passage is that there is no room for compromise. There is no room for compromise. Amen? I'll tell you why. If we read from verse 14, it says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold on to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold on to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans will learn about them from the previous passage last week. Repent, therefore, says God, otherwise I will soon come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. God doesn't like compromise. I got a feeling it makes him very angry. To think about it. Serving Christ and holding on to idol worship. It explained it very well. Let's go, let's turn to Revelation 3. Verse 15 and 16, this is what we'll be learning in a couple of weeks' time, but I thought I'd steal this verse from there because it, it's very applicable to what we're learning today as well. Revelation 3, 15 and 16. He says, this is Jesus, he says, So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Okay, from verse 15. 15 says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. There is no room for compromise. There is no room for compromise. And when he's talking about compromise here, he's talking about holding on to the teachings of Balaam. And I think to understand this properly, we just have to visit the story of Balaam briefly and look back um, Turn your Bibles with me to uh, Numbers 22. Um, I may just have to summarize the story for you. But I'll just read one verse for you, then I'll summarize the rest um, for you. Because I found this very, very interesting. I think the story of Balaam is one of the most interesting stories in the Bible. Uh, if you remember the donkey that spoke. This was Balaam's donkey. <laughs> Balaam's donkey. I'll uh, just read the first couple of verses just to get a background of what was going on here. It says, Then the Israelites traveled to the plains of Moab and camped along the Jordan opposite Jericho. Now Balak was the king, was the son of Zippor, saw that Israel had come, saw what the Israelites had done to the Amorites. And Moab was terrified because there were so many people. Indeed, Moab was filled with dread because of the Israelites. Amen. So in short, Balak then approaches Balaam, the prophet of God, and he says, look, I want you to come curse the Israelites, because once you curse them, I know that they'll be weaker, then I can defeat them. And the first time, Balaam says, no, I won't do it. Because when the servants came, they asked him if he can do it. He said, okay, stay the night. He went to sleep. He was a prophet. I believe that he dreamt that night. God visited him. God says, don't do it. So he says to the servants, go back. Go tell your king. I won't do it. And the king sends his servants again the next 
the next time, and he says, look, I can't accept it now. Tell Balaam that I'm going to give him some gifts. So they came again. Balaam says, okay, wait, let me consult God. God says, don't do it. He tells the servants, I won't do it. And the third time, they come again, promised them more gifts. Balaam agreed to go. And God was furious. So he intervened and he sent his angel to stand in front of him and just to distort his ways. That's when the donkey saw the angel. The donkey ran around in circles and later on said, hey, stop beating me. I haven't done anything wrong. Amen? But I think the biggest mistake that we can ever do is to read Numbers 22 and 23 and think. Because when we read those two passages, I do advise that we read them. We learn that Balaam, every time that he tried to curse the children of Israel, he prophesied upon them. Okay? So Balak said, yeah, go curse them. And he'll prophesy. He says, okay, this is not working. So he takes Balaam to another mountain where they can see the children of Israel from a distance. And he says, okay, there they are. Now try again. And he blessed them. But it's until we look later on and realize what happened with Balaam. Okay? So let's look at Numbers 25 and let's see after some time, what happened to the children of Israel, which is where Revelation focuses on. When Jesus is speaking of Balaam, it's in reference to what we see in Numbers 25. Um, I'll quickly read the first two verses for you so we can quickly have an idea of after some time, from what seemed like a, you know, a, a nice man, a strong prophet, um, of God, suddenly things change in Numbers 25, and it says, while Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women. Suddenly there's a change. Who invited them to the, sacri- who invited them to, to, the sacrifice, to the sacrifices that they were making to their gods? The people ate, and, ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves to bow of Pur. And the Lord's anger burned against them. So all of a sudden you have the children of Israel that have turned to idol worship out of nowhere. And we get who was responsible for this in chapter 31, verse 15. So the story goes on. The Lord says to Moses, okay, I want you to take vengeance against the Midianites. So the soldiers go to war, and in verse 15, we'll see what happened. After these guys came to war, Moses sees them coming back. And the first thing that he says to them, he says, have you allowed all women to leave? He asks them. They were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and enticed the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord in the Pearl incident. Amen? So that a plague struck the Lord's people. Balaam was a prophet of God. But he gave in when money came along. Amen? And let's see what else. Now, I think it becomes just more clear just to solidify this whole point about Balaam because I don't want to take too long on it. It becomes clear when we read about it in 2 Peter 2, verse 15. So it's mentioned in the Old Testament as a reference yet again. Um, in 2 Peter 2 
verse 15, I'll read it for you. It says, they have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Bezer, who loved the wages of the wicked. Verse 16, it says, but he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, an animal without speech, who spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Interesting. Interesting. So to tie that, I'll read what we're reading initially, Revelation 2, verse 14, where he says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Now Jesus is speaking after all these generations. There are some among you who hold on to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that the eight-foot sacrifice to idols and committed sexual immorality. And we see how this trend has gone on for generation after generation after generation after generation. And if there's one thing that Jesus is talking about in reference to Balaam, is the tradition that these guys will hold him on to, the Israelites here. And the church in Pegamos, thousands of years later, What Balaam had introduced years before was holding these guys back when it came to worshiping God. Amen? There is no room for compromise. There is no room for negotiation when it comes to the Word of God. When it comes to the thing of God, it is to stand firm, it is to stand pure, it is to hold on only to his teaching. And I think as I started to study this, I realized that, okay, it's so easy as a Christian to, to mix tradition with the things of God. It's so easy to mix tradition with the things of God. I think for us, the most interesting part came to when we're you know, getting married. And I think when you're getting married, that's when you really see what tradition is. Because all of a sudden, everyone wants you to do things that were done by their forefathers before. All of a sudden, people want you to do things the way that they did it back, back, back then. And I think if there's one stand that I took with my wife, I was like, okay, if there's one thing that was standing against this tradition. And there were some people who came and said, okay, you know, uh, when you're getting married, okay, this is what we want you to do. You bring your wife, and then we'll do this, we'll do that. I said, um... Everything that we're going to do starts and ends in the church. Everything that we'll do, as long as it's in the Bible, we'll do it. If it's not, I'm going to struggle to do it. Because <laughs> once you open a door, I'm sorry, but Jesus doesn't like it. I didn't say it. He doesn't like it. Amen? Now the fourth and last thing that it says in verse 17, it says, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen? Amen? To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, not only to the one who receives it. I think when I read that, it got me really excited, and I started thinking, okay, God has a promise. God has a promise. And I think the first thing that I learned from verse 17, it says, 
Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I think to get that properly, we have to look at it in third person. Okay? We're reading a letter that Jesus wrote years ago to the churches. And it says in verse 17, John writes, it says, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church, which means the Spirit is still speaking today through this very passage. As it did to the churches so that the Spirit speaks to us now. Amen? And it becomes crucial for us to really pay attention spiritually. And it's easy when you're reading this passage to just read it as a novel, but really and truly there's something that God is saying, the things that we're learning in this passage. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And it says, to the one who is victorious. For me, that says a few things to me. It says that it's not easy. To the one who is victorious. It tells me that this is, there will be some sort of bell. And I get the feeling that not everyone will make it. Because it says to the one who is victorious. Why would he say that? To the one who is victorious. And then comes the promises. To the one who is victorious. But before I go to the promises that God says, I think it's important to think about who we are and where we are in Christ. Do we not operate from a place of victory? Yeah? Are we not in Christ? Are we victorious? So here comes our promise. He says, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it. Not only to the one who receives it. Amen? And the hidden manna represents spiritual nourishment. Everlasting food. Everlasting water. To satisfy our deepest hunger and thirst. And I think to understand it properly, there are a few verses that I had to go to. One of them is in John 6, verse 51. I think in the book of John, Jesus speaks of this food uh, that no one had it before. So first I'll read John 6, verse 51, and then I'll read for you some verses from John 4. Okay, so um, this is the last part that we'll run. So we're moving on really well. Um, just to summarize. John 6, 51. Anyone there? If you're there, say amen. amen. If you've got your Bible, say Amen. Not the one on the screen, Trevor. (laughs) John 6, verse 51, it says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Amen? But I think to really understand this, I really had a great time just reading from John 4. And I'll summarize the story before I read just two verses from John 4. 
which for me has grown to be one of my favorite passages ever since I started learning about it this year, where we have um, the story about the woman at the well. Um, when Jesus is walking, uh, walking past Samaria uh, on, the, on his way to Galilee. So he's going past Samaria and he comes across a, a plot of land that Jacob uh, gave to, to Joseph. So this... So, so he comes to this well. Jesus is tired and he rests by the well around about noontime and then a woman comes across to draw water. And Jesus says to her, uh, will you give me some water to drink? And at this point, his disciples had gone to the city to buy food. And basically, just to summarize, she says, well, you're a Jew. I can't give you water. You're a Jew. And Jesus says, well, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me to give you the water. Now, let me read that verse for you so we can get it properly. Let's read verse 18. Uh, so the previous scriptures here, Jesus is having a back and forth with this woman. And in verse 13 he says, Everyone who drinks this water, the water that Jesus is talking about, he says, will never thirst again. But whoever drinks the water, or Jesus first says, the water that you have, anyone who drinks it will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman says, Give me this water so I won't get thirsty and I don't have to come back to this world and get water again. But that's not what I want to focus on. I want to focus on the last thing in verse 34. When the disciples come back with food and they keep insisting that Jesus eats the food that has brought them, Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who has sent me to finish his work. Amen? Jesus is talking about spiritual nourishment. Spiritual nourishment. Which is the everlasting food, the everlasting manna, the everlasting water that is promising us. Food to keep us going, even when we have none. Amen? And I think one of my favorite bits when it comes to the promise that God, that Jesus says here, is the promise regarding a new name. Regarding a new name. Sarai was given a new name, Sarah. Sarai meaning my princess to Sarah, mother of nations. Abram, high father, was given a new name, Abraham, father of the multitude. That's in Genesis 17, verse 5. Jacob was given a new name, Israel, he that wrestled with God. And Jesus said, I will give you a new name. His promises are yes and amen. And if I remember at the beginning of this year, we did a prayer and fasting regarding the names that God has promised us regarding the name that God has given you, regarding the name that God has given me. Amen. Let us all rise in closing with this.
He says, I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. I remember when, when we did the prayer and fasting, and it's the first time that I actually started studying this, and I realized, okay, what, what name has God given me? What name has God promised me? What name is it that God calls me by? Amen. And God visits me and shows me, and He shows me a few things. He shows me praying for people when they're getting healed. He shows me praying for people when they're getting delivered. And at that point, I knew the direction in which I was going. God had given me a new name. God had given me a new name. God has promised you a new name. It's time for us to discover the name that which God calls us by. What name is it that God has called you by? What name is it that God calls you by? He says, I will give you a new name. I will give you a new name. For you have come victorious. You have come victorious. That even in the midst of the challenges, in the midst of everything that's happening around this city, everything that's happening behind you, everything that's happening behind these walls, you're serving God. You're serving God. And His promises everlasting food. His promises spiritual nourishment. His promises a new name. Let us stretch our hands. We're speaking and pray. And as we pray, I just want to just remember that these are prophetic letters that we're learning. These letters apply to us today as much as they did to the Church of Pergamon. And as much as they apply to the Church of Pergamon, they apply to us today. God says to them who are victorious, I will give them spiritual nourishment. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your promises that you said, Amen. Thank you, O oh God, for the promises that you have spoken of our lives, O oh God. Reveal to us the names by which you call us by, O oh God. Reveal to us the names by which you call us by. Reveal to us the names by which you call us by, O oh God. You have a name for us, O oh God. A name only revealed to us. A name only revealed to me, O oh Father. A name only revealed to me, O oh God. A name only revealed to you, O God. Reveal to us, O God, the new name. Reveal to us the new names, O God. Reveal to me the new name, O God. Reveal to me the new name, O God. Shikha, 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 Shikha,